Hello and welcome to episode 51 of the History of Yugoslav Football Podcast, The Last Good Season. Before we jump into the uh, main bulk of the episode itself, just a quick note on scheduling. Um, as things stand, um, obviously you probably know I'm based in the UK, and uh, with schools closed at the moment, it means that I am um, doing quite a lot of homeschooling of children. As a result, it means that the time I actually have to write and uh, most importantly record the episode has really been quite limited at the moment. Um, Obviously, that means that while I do try to keep to a weekly schedule, it's probably unlikely that I'm going to be able to keep to that consistently uh, as things stand. But obviously, I will endeavour to make sure there is still regular content. Ah, so, uh, if you do want to, uh, <laughs> if, you, if you are missing your fix, please do direct all blame towards uh, Boris Johnson. Um, but on to the show. The 1984-85 Yugoslav season is perhaps the last normal season the nation would ever have. The three seasons that follow this will be defined by matters off the field rather than on it. A scandal will threaten to tear the league apart and then, once the ramifications of that are dealt with, the league is burdened by a decision from Slavko Shaiva that will both be perhaps the silliest decision in football governance history and also perhaps the reason that Sven Zvezda win it all and this, the small matter of the nation beginning to fall apart and the fire of nationalism itself will be lit come the conclusion of this episode. While the post-Tito period to this point hasn't exactly been plain sailing, this season represents the turn into far choppier waters. Yet, at the same time, it moved the centre of Yugoslav football for a season and the ramifications of it will give us a new national team manager who will be with us to the bitter end and provide the start for many players who would go on to be in Yugoslavia's final generation, in particular Dejan Savicevic. So, to start with the national team first of all, after the debacle of Euro 1984, Milos Milutinovic had taken over as manager and as we mentioned in our last look at the national team, promptly got smashed 6-1 at Hamilton by Scotland. The game had seen numerous debuts for the sides such as Fadil Vokri and Darko Panchev, and the side would have a vastly different look when it came round to the first competitive fixtures for the Plava Shigla in the World Cup qualifiers. Much like every qualification stage, there is what people think of as a group of death, and Yugoslavia got it, having to face France, Bulgaria and East Germany to qualify. And while Yugoslavia got off to a promising start, beating East Germany away, that was about as good as it got, as while, unlike at Euro 84, Yugoslavia was solid. But they just also didn't score. They even had an international final mid-qualification, reaching the final of the friendly Nehru Cup in India. While they're only debatable in being classified as internationals, it's fair to know that Yugoslavia's final uh, appearance in the tournament in early 1985 was with a very strong team, as, for that matter, had the USSR, their opponents in the final, who would take the cup with a 2-1 win. That early highlight, however, was as good as 1985 got. Yugoslavia would go their next three qualifiers unbeaten, two 1-0 wins over the Minos Luxembourg, and a 0-0 draw in Sarajevo against France. It promptly all went wrong. Three defeats in a row against Bulgaria away, East Germany at the JNA and then France in Paris sent Yugoslavia out of the tournament. Milutinovic was out and the man who came in would be Avicii Osim, Yugoslavia's final manager. But 
Oshin has a little bit of club business to get out of the way first with Zelius Nikar, so it makes sense that our first port of call this episode is in the UEFA Cup, and what would be, for various reasons, an extremely tumultuous campaign. But rather than starting out Zelius Nikar, it makes sense to begin a little further north at Rijeka, whose campaign would encompass two Spanish sides. The first, Real Valladolid, would win their first round first leg in Spain before getting battered 4-1 at Cantrida, thanks to a double from Adriano Figic. Their second Spanish team would be none other than Real Madrid, and the result of the tie would see the referee of the second leg banned for life. The architect of some of the nonsense would be Damir Desnitscher. Desnitscher, who we've mentioned a little before, is famously both deaf and mute. And when we get to the big event in the second leg, it's well worth remembering those two things. In the first leg on the Adriatic coast, things went well for Rijeka, opening with a fabulous Adriano Figic goal, cutting him from the left wing and belting it into the top corner. Within a minute, Danko Matrilian would take advantage of some shambolic defending to turn and shoot into the corner from around the penalty spot. Figic would score a second from distance early in the second half, with a low shot squirming under the keeper and putting Rijeka 3-0 up on the hour. Isidro would pull one back late, but Rijeka would take a 3-1 lead to the Bernabeu. What followed in Spain was one of the more infamously tampered with games of the era. It would start with Milenkovic being sent off on 34 minutes for a second yellow card, but it took Real until the 67th to make a breakthrough, Juanito scoring from the penalty spot after a very debatable call for the spot kick. But soon after, the incident the game would be remembered for happened. Desnitscher would be sent through for an offside position. Owing to being deaf, he didn't hear the whistle, and poked the ball on and out of play, and then was given a second yellow card for dissent, in spite of the fact that he was neither capable of hearing the whistle, or actually communicating any dissent to the referee. Santillana would give Real the lead on away goals from a scramble soon after, with Valdano sealing the deal on 82 minutes. There was still time for referee Roger Schurters to reduce Rijeka to eight men, sending off Dicic. Even journalist Jesus Arzaide, who would later become part of Real Madrid's TV channel, would headline his match report, The Referee Helped Real. Martha stated that most would think the referee was just another Real player on the night. Schurters would be banned for life from refereeing by UEFA and returned to his day job as a Belgian taxman. Well, at least he did have a uh, profession that was less popular than referee. Um, Real themselves would go on to win the tournament. For Partizan, they'd have an equally eventful trip through the tournament, opening with a facile 4-0 aggregate win in the first round over Malta's Rabat Ajax. Their reward was a draw against QPR in a game we alluded to a couple of episodes ago. While the enduring image of the tie would be Dragan Mansa hammering one in from 25 yards, the tie itself was pretty extraordinary in and of itself. Mansa's goal put Partizan 2-1 up in that first leg at Highbury before QPR would go on to win 6-2. Partizan had gone behind in that leg before Nikita Krinkarski scored from a 1-1 -on -one and then Mansa did his thing. From there, it was a simple case of Partizan being unable to deal with set pieces as three goals came from throw-ins, with one from Warren Neal being a 30-yard rocket, almost, almost, the equal of Mansa's goal. Four goals down, and surely the tie was over. The game itself, however, had seen some bad blood. 
Warren followed his goal by getting sent off, and there were numerous meaty tackles that drew the ire of partisan manager Nina Pjekovic. As a result, the JNA may not have been full, but it was certainly fiery in the second leg. Partisan would get the perfect start as Mansa headed home after five minutes. QPR held out until five minutes before half-time when a penalty was conceded after a run from Svonko Zivkovic in his first game after completing national service. From there, QPR collapsed. Jesic would see a low shot from distance bundled in by the goalkeeper before Zivkovic would head home a free kick. After 64 minutes, the comeback was complete and QPR was done. Manager Alan Mullery said the team lost on as soon as they walked out at the JNA, overawed by the atmosphere and overwhelmed by Partizan. Come the third round, Partizan would be drawn against Hungary's Videodon and would be swept aside 5-2 on aggregate after a 5-0 first leg loss, helped mainly by four goals on the night from Shabal Yosef. So, with Partizan and Rijeka dealt with, it left one side in the tournament for Yugoslavia, and that other business for Ivica seemed to get involved in, Zelyeznikar. When they first properly met us in, it was as a willing participant in the Planinich affair in the 1960s, and rightly getting a lengthy ban for being the on-pitch general for the notorious match-fixing scandal. His playing career went on until 1978, as he recovered from Planinich to have a very decent international career and two spells abroad, the first in the Netherlands at Svorsche Boys, which was cut short by injury, and the second, from 1970 onwards, at various French clubs, becoming most associated with Strasbourg, where he'd win League 2, and Sedan. On retiring, he immediately joined up as manager of Zelio in what would be broad, a broadly successful period where he would keep the side competitive on one front or another. Their third place seat finished the season prior would be the best league position Oshin would manage at the club, but this UEFA Cup run would likely be the high watermark itself of his reign. Their campaign would begin against Bulgaria's Sliven, with a 1-0 away loss in the first leg before a Fico Batic hat-trick would steal the show in a 5-1 win at Gabavica to take Zelio through comfortably to face Sion in the second round, and for a second bit of a masterclass from Batic who would score a double in the home first leg to put Zelyeznikar ahead 2-1 going to Switzerland. From there, Edin Church would take advantage of some extremely naive defending to grab an away goal, as a one-all draw was all that was needed to take Zelyeznikar into the third round and to take on Universitatea Klaiova. I may have added an extra syllable in there, I apologise to any Romanians listening. <laughs> the Romanian side were at the tail end of their second golden age and had reached the semis of the UEFA Cup in 82-83 they were consistently around the top of the Romanian league for more or less the entire decade. Hajduk had done for them on penalties the season before, but already in this season they put out two great sides in Real Betis and Olympiakos. They were a big step up from the team of Celestinkar faced so far and so it proved in the first leg, as Aricha Berdianu with curling strike and Rodion Kamataru sealed a 2-0 win in the first 30 minutes. In Sarajevo, Celestinkar had it all to do and wouldn't help themselves by missing an early penalty. Harish Skoro would open the scoring on 32 minutes, poking home a spilled cross. Zoran Samagia would then level the tide just before half-time with a tap-in at the far post. Radmilo Mihailovic would put Zelesnikar in front with a flick-on from a corner before Nikola Nikic would finish matters with 8 minutes to go, beating two men before drilling it home from the edge of the box. Zelesnikar had demolished Krajova 4-0, a result which remains Krajova's record loss in European competition nearly 40 years on. With one golden team smashed, it was time to face another one. That 
of Dynamo Minsk. Minsk had been Soviet champions a couple of seasons prior and reached the quarterfinals of the European Cup the season before this. And they'd already put out Sporting Club de Portugal this season. Much of the title winning side was still at the club, not least star defender Yuti Kuninin and regular Soviet international midfielder Sergei Oletnikov. Their quality mattered not in the first leg. It would take Sergio an hour, but eventually a deep cross would float over the entire defence, finding Samagia free at the back post to take a touch and prod it high into the goal. Mehmed Bazdarevich would seal the win with four minutes to go, dancing through the centre past four challenges before calmly clipping it in to the goal for an absolutely wonderful strike, well worth your time to find and have a little watch of. Come a fortnight later, and Seriesnikar would travel to a muddy Minsk in a hostile welcome, along with a disastrous start. Alexander Kishten belting home a full clearance from a corner to drag Minsk back into the tie. Cometh the hour, cometh the fico. Seriesnikar would take a quick free kick, sending Batic down the channel down the right. He would get close to the goal line and drill across in. It would clip the bottom of the defender's boot, and that was all it took to divert it beyond the keeper at their near post. Away goal obtained, game over, and Zayestnikar threw to a semi-final against a club we've already met this episode, Vidyaton. Vidy had, of course, spanked Partizan in the third round, but their route to the semis was hardly easy. After Partizan, they uh, took on Paris Saint-Germain and followed it up with a 5-2 win, uh, and of course beating Partizan's own famed Sarajevo-associated player in Zabit Susic. They needed penalties in their quarterfinals to get beyond another club who we've had associated with Sarajevo in the past, Manchester United. And they, they had got to the semis the hard way and showed their quality in the first leg. Josa Bursa from a free kick and Lajlo Gistel, after ambling into space behind the defence, scored within the first 20 minutes in the first leg in Fervar to take control of the tie. But Harris Scorer would pull Zelio back into it soon after, allowed to take a touch and turn in the box to slot home on 21 minutes. Imre Vadash would score a volley late on to make it 3-1 on the night, but with the away goal in the bag, Selyesnikar knew they had a big chance come the home leg, and they got the perfect start. A deep cross would come in and fail to be dealt with, falling to Figo Batic. His first attempt would squirm under the keeper, but look wide, but he was able to nip onto the rebound and slot home. Chances would keep coming Zelio's way. Churic would beat the keeper, but see a slot slide just past the post. Batic would head wide. It would take till the 72nd minute to get level with an extremely lucky goal. A cross would come in from that man again, Batic, from the right, be spilled from the goalkeeper onto the head of Samadzic, and Edin Church would be the man on the end of the pinball to turn it in. From then, it was one-way traffic as Vidyaton had to score to avoid loss on away goals. They left it to the last, passing around the box before clipping a ball into Josef Chuhai, running into space from right back, driving into the box. He slid the ball low and saw the keeper Shkirba get a touch, but it wasn't enough to prevent it from wriggling inside the post with two minutes to go. Osim's head would be in his hands, so Yesnikar had had the chances to put Vidyaton away, but didn't, and eventually got beaten by a side who had enough time and nothing to lose to create a chance and take it. Vidyaton would go on to lose 3-1 in the final to Real Madrid. For Zayesnikar, they wouldn't appear in European competition for another 13 years. Osim would be at the club for one more season, but as soon as he departed, the rot would set in a rot that would last up until the end of Yugoslavia itself. As for the other European competitions, neither Sven and Sviester in the European Cup or Heiduk in the Cup Winners' Cup got past one round. 
Tvefta may have won their first leg against Benfica 3-2 with Aranko Yanyan in hat-trick, but a 2-0 loss in Lisbon was enough to put the Portuguese side through. That European season, of course, would end with the Heysel disaster in the final. Heysel was a poor selection for this final venue, given it was a dilapidated ground and the fan issues were twofold. Firstly, the game was legitimately between the two best sides in Europe and, as a result, was hotly anticipated to match. And secondly, the Liverpool fans had pre-existing bad blood with Italian ultras. With the Juventus area of the stadium placed right next to Liverpool fans, trouble was inevitable. And worse still, the area between the sections was poorly manned by police. Liverpool fans entered the Juventus area, charged, and the Juventus fans huddled against the perimeter wall, which collapsed. 39 fans died, with over 600 injured. Within a week, UEFA had banned English clubs from European competition indefinitely, with Liverpool's ban being indefinite plus three seasons. Um, eventually, that would mean every English club being banned for European competition for five years and Liverpool for six. This may not be directly involved with our story, but it does have impact on Yugoslavia. While England were out of the picture, the places in European competition had to go somewhere, and they went to the nations around the coefficient table who would normally only have two sides. In practice, what this means is that Yugoslavia get an extra side in European competition in 86-87, 88-89, and play off with France for an extra spot in 89-90. England, meanwhile, would need a few years to sort themselves out. Hajduk's European venture was of course impacted by their chicken-related issues against Spurs the prior season. The, their punishment was to play their home games at least 300 kilometers from Poljud. Against Dinamo Moscow in the first round of the Cup Winners' Cup, this meant playing in Osijek and getting hammered 5-2. Domestically, the Cup would be played between Dinamo and Svjeta. Dinamo's season has started terribly, failing to win any of their first seven games, which saw Branko Sebec fired and replaced by Tomislav Ivic. A successful move as, had the form under Ivic been shown the whole season, Dinamo would have finished third rather than sixth. Ivic would, as is more or less traditional at this point, if you followed this podcast through the, his time at Hydro at the 70s, would take Dinamo to the final, but left the club between the two legs of the final after losing the first leg 2-1 at Maximir. Svjevsta would finish the job at the Maracanã with a one-all draw, providing the last piece of silverware for Goiko Zec at the club, fired to the goal to the club by the goals of Suleiman Halilovic. In the league, the bottom of the top flight saw the true end of Radnik Nishi's golden age, finishing with relegation to the second tier along with Iskra, who saw their time in the top tier be as one-season wonders only. They would be replaced by two returning sides in Sherik and OFK. At the top, it would be a two-horse race between Hajduk and FK Sarajevo. Even through the autumn alone, they built a little gap to the rest of the league, with Zvezda having joined Dinamo in having a poor start to the season. By the time there were eight games to go, the two were over six points clear of the rest of the league. Hajduk were fired to their challenge by Zlatko Vujovic, with Sarajevo by Husrev Mstemic. Hajduk, managed by Stanko Pokerbevic, <laughs> Uh, we're at the point of moving new players into the side. Most spectacularly, a 19-year-old who would score eight goals this season called Alyosa Asanovic. Sarajevo, meanwhile, were in the second season of management from Bosco Antic, one of the most important players in their title-winning side of the mid-60s, and were benefiting from the final season at the club of a player who had taken over Safet Susic's mantle of top creator and tormentor, Predrag Pasic, who would be named the league's player of the season. Both sides were more or less matched, 
over the spring, both weak at the start and drawing nil-nil at Polio to keep the gap to one point. It would all go to the final day where Sarajevo would travel to Maracanã and Heinrich would host Dino and everything would go Sarajevo's way. They would take the league lead early against Fiesta while Heinrich stuttered to a 4-2 defeat to their eternal rivals. By four points, and for the second time, FK Sarajevo were champions of Yugoslavia. The next three seasons will be defined by scandal. The following seasons will be defined by a bizarre decision and eventually by conflict. This season, a season with winners most would consider unlikely, would be the last outright normal season the league would have. Because way back when, when we talked about the Planinich affair, I mentioned that there were two great all-encompassing scandals in Yugoslav football, and we are on the cusp of the second one, because next time on the History of Yugoslav Football podcast, we begin the first part of a little sub-series, as Slavko Shaiba becomes the most important man in Yugoslav football, and ends up with the biggest headache in Yugoslav football, as match-fixing goes into overdrive. Thank you very much for listening. Uh, please do feel free to leave a review on your podcast service. Please do feel free to share this episode on social media. The more, the better. I do love hearing feedback and things like that. So, you know, I am very interested uh, to see us grow our listenership. Um, you may also, uh, at time of release, um, probably will be a little... Um, article I've uh, helped out with for uh, Lithuanian media um, related to Hyduck for 15 minutes um, the portal there um, so please if you do uh, have access to the uh, to the best of Lithuanian sports writing please feel free to have a, a little read about that about um, uh, the challenges facing Mindaugas Nikolicius uh, as he takes over as sporting director of Hyduck um, but until next time, uh, thank you very much for listening, and I will uh, catch you then.